You are listening to the podcast of the Y Church of the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share his love. We are going to turn to scripture now, and Megan is going to read for us this morning. John 13, 1 through 10. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, "'Lord, are you going to wash my feet?' Jesus replied, "'You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand.' "'No,' said Peter, "'you shall never wash my feet.' Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. Well, hello, church family. This is Bjorn checking in from California. Pre-recording this greeting to you, I just want to express how thankful I am to have your support to be out here taking classes this week on discipleship. And it's just been such a a rich experience so far. I miss you this Sunday morning as you see this, but I'm so thrilled to introduce to you our guest speaker. Brian Bademan is somebody that I've gotten to know this past year, and I just want to share a little bit of his bio with you as we prepare to hear the message. Brian Bademan is the executive director at Anselm House at the University of Minnesota. Anselm House is a Christian study center, which seeks to make the University of Minnesota a great place for a Christian education. Prior to joining Anselm House, Brian taught college history and specialized in American religious history. He's an alum of the U of M, Wheaton College, and he did his PhD at Notre Dame in church history. He serves also as an elder at City Life Church in St. Paul. He's been married to Tess for 27 years, and they have two young adult daughters. Brian and I got to meet each other over this last year as we've worked together on a a collaborative project around church planting together through his engagement at City Life and an organization called Mosaics Academy. Brian is an extremely sharp guy and yet so humble and down to earth and uh, a wonderful student of God's Word. And so I know that you'll be blessed as we welcome him now to preach. And so if you would, please give him a warm white church welcome. Well, thank you, Bjorn. Well, that's very fun. That's never happened to me before. Nor have I ever preached at a YMCA. So this is a lot of fun. Again, I'm Brian. I'm from St. Paul, Minnesota. I work at the University of Minnesota as a campus minister at Anselm House. I was thinking on the way up here, Anselm House is filling a gap that about a hundred years ago, campus YMCAs left. 
campus YMCA's, as you probably know, stopped doing Christian ministry and Bible studies and faith and vocation things and have become more sort of social engagement organizations, which is great. They do wonderful social engagement, and we know the Campus Y very well at the University of Minnesota. But about 100 years ago, the Campus Ys used to do the things that Anselm House does. Bjorn put it really well, we're trying to make the University of Minnesota a great place to get a Christian education. So, you know, some people sort of think, oh, I need to go to a Christian college, you know, get a kind of robust Christian formation. Some people think, oh, you know, I'd really like to do that, but the engineering program at the University of Minnesota is so good and so strong. We want to say, what if you could have both? (laughs) What if you could get that robust Christian formation at a place like Anselm House at the University of Minnesota? So we work with faculty, with graduate students, and with undergrads, even with PSEO students. So we're kind of comprehensive in that sense of the whole sort of you know, scale of the university's people. If you'd like to know a little bit more about our work, I brought a bunch of stuff. Feel free to take it all. That would make me very happy. I wouldn't have to bring it back. And if you take something, you can remember to pray for us. Church partnerships are very important for our work. We hear regularly about churches that are praying for us, And that is such an encouragement, and obviously prayer makes things happen in the kingdom, and so we need it. So if you would, take some stuff. There's, you know, I I think I saw like an article on science and faith and Flannery O'Connor. There's some kind of interesting stuff over there. If you know University of Minnesota students, we have a fellows program that is sort of our flagship kind of formation program for students. And I've got a bunch of flyers for the fellows program. Feel free to take a bunch. So anyway, it's a treat to be with you. It's been a treat to get to know Bjorn over the last year or so. This morning, we're going to look at John 13. And my style might be different than Bjorn's. I kind of do sort of deep dives into the biblical text. And so I do invite you to have your Bible out because we're going to be looking at these 10 verses or so pretty carefully. So let me pray, and then we'll get going. Father, as we hear this account of what Jesus did on the night he was betrayed, as we read it, as we take it into our hearts, we are humbled by your great love for your people and the world. And we confess that your descent into our lowliness, your lowering of yourself to serve us is hard for us to understand. Our minds are slow, our imaginations are timid, and our wills are embarrassingly self-serving. So would you, in your mercy, by your Spirit, still us that we might see and believe and be empowered to follow the example of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, through whom we pray. Amen. Okay, so if you're familiar at all with the Gospel of John, 
You might recall that the story John tells in the whole book takes a dramatic turn right here in chapter 13. Up until this point, John has been stressing Jesus' public ministry among the Jews. And for the most part, this story has been characterized by mounting tension and opposition as Jesus reveals more and more of who he is and what he's come to do. While it's true that some believed in Jesus, these are sadly exceptions to the rule. Instead, the flow of the story has moved in the other direction, particularly with respect to the Jewish authorities, the elites. These leaders, of course, would have been happy to co-opt Jesus into their agenda, but they grew murderous, literally murderous in their intentions when Jesus exposed their ambitions and idolatries for what they were. They remained in darkness. I'm reminded of the words of the opening chapter of this gospel, John chapter 1, where he writes, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was even made through him, yet the world did not know him. And then there's that key verse that I think quite nicely sums up chapters 1 through 12 of John. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. You remember that verse? He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. That's John 1 through 12, okay? But now, in chapter 13, and really throughout the rest of the book, if we were to continue to read it all, we're looking down, as it were, on a different stage. If you can picture it, if this was like a Guthrie a theater show, it's as if we've come back from an intermission to find a more intimate setting and a much shorter cast of characters. And for this second act, we find that the pace slows down. John is moving us toward the climax of his story, and it's as if he doesn't want us to miss a single detail. Suddenly, the hour that Jesus has been talking about for years has arrived, and he's going to relate it to us in what feels like real time. From this point on, Jesus turns his attention to those who received him, to those who who believed in his name. Now, before we jump into this remarkable story, I'd like us to notice a few important features of John's careful staging. John is sort of staging the story, just the same way that a theater company would do. Right away, you can see in the first verse that it's Passover. This is the third and final time in the book that John frames Jesus' actions by this particular feast. And as before, there's a reason, although here it's perhaps most obvious. John is marking 
the day before Jesus will literally become the sacrificial lamb for his people. This is the day before Good Friday. He will shed his innocent blood that will satisfy the judgment of God and forgive his people of their sins. Everything that happens now in this passage is anticipating the cross. We might say that Jesus is moving under the shadow of the cross here. And this is why, for example, when John refers to the feast of the Passover in verse 1, he tells us that this, this moment, is when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. So Jesus is thinking about the cross and all the events that are so intimately connected to this hour, the suffering, the dying, of course, but also the resurrection, and explicitly here, the ascension, the rising of Jesus to the right hand of God the Father and reigning over all of the universe. The second thing we should note about this staging is that the work that Jesus has been doing and the work that he's about to do as he moves toward the cross is the work of love. It's the work of love. From here on out in John's gospel, you would notice if you read through the whole thing, the increasing frequency of the word love. It's hardly there in the first 12 chapters. It's everywhere from chapter 13 to the end. Love, more than anything else, is determining the course of Jesus' life. Knowing his hour had come, the text says, and having loved his own who were in the world, Jesus loved them, what does it say? To the end. To the end. In other words, to the fullest extent, all the way to death, all the way to the cross. And as strange or ridiculous or offensive as this may have then seemed, and maybe still seems to many, the cross is the place where God's love is most fully expressed and publicly made known. And there's going to be more on that point in a minute. And then finally in verse 3, right before the action begins, we get another window into Jesus' thought life. John writes, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, notice what he's getting at here, before telling us what Jesus is going to do, he tells us who Jesus is and that Jesus knows who he is. And who is he? He's no less than the King of glory, the Lord of creation, God incarnate. This is the one through whom worlds were made. And because of his faithful service to God, he's been given everything that's God's. John wants us, the writer of this gospel, wants us to be thinking about these things as we turn to the story that comes next. Okay, what does Jesus do? With these things in mind, Jesus, the text continues in verse 4, rose from supper, and notice the irony. 
he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. In other words, he's taking on the role, the posture, even the uniform of a house slave. And then he pours water into a basin and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. Okay, what's going on here? Those of us who maybe grew up in the church and know this passage almost by heart and have heard it a hundred times are probably, I would submit to you, the least likely to understand it. We often think, it's easy to think, of this scene as rather cozy and sentimental, the kind of touching or inspiring story we might expect to find on the Hallmark Channel. But you need to know this was not a touching moment. Foot washing was never sentimental. It was one of those places where the social hierarchy of the ancient world was on full display. Nobody was tearing up at this moment. They were confused at best, possibly enraged. A modern-day analogy, which I don't think quite works because of our egalitarian and sort of free market commitments, a modern-day analogy might be Jesus taking employment as a migrant worker in a dangerous meatpacking plant or something. Or another analogy might be Jesus coming to you in a parking lot offering to wash your windshield for a couple bucks. Okay? Respectable people don't expect respectable people to do that kind of work. This was foot washing in the ancient Near East. It was so base, so degrading, that in some places, Jewish slaves were prohibited from doing the work. And so the job fell primarily to Gentile slaves. So you can imagine, then, what was going through the disciples' minds as they watched Jesus' careful, calculated descent into that role. Here's their Lord, their rabbi, their teacher, the one with whom they've been proud to identify. And he takes off the clothes, the garments, the uniform that marks him as such, and he puts on the garments of humility, even slavery. It's telling that in all of the documentary evidence we have of ancient Near Eastern foot washing, nowhere in the sources is there a case where a superior washes an inferior's feet. Nowhere, except, of course, here. This was an utterly unprecedented, culturally subversive act, an offense against the fitness of things. And the real irony for John is not simply to highlight the incongruity as if to say, hey, look here, the Lord of creation is doing a slave's job. That's not, that's not exactly John's point. The real irony goes much deeper. 
And this is why Jesus' actions were so confounding to those who even had the faintest clue to what was going on. You see, John is showing us that this kind of lowly, demeaning service on behalf of sinful humanity, this descent of God, if you will, is what it means to be the Lord of creation. With the resources of heaven literally at his disposal, with the strength of God and all the heavenly hosts at his back, what does Jesus do? Where does Jesus go? How does he put his incomprehensible power into action in the world? What does he do with his authority? Well, according to John, he does exactly what God would do. Friends, this is not any ordinary power. This is not any ordinary authority. This isn't the stuff that wins friends and influences people. This is the power and authority of God. And if you want to know what that looks like in the world, do you ever wonder what God's powerful love looks like in the world? John is saying it looks like Jesus here on his knees doing what no one would ever think of doing. It's unthinkable. And he's doing it for love. He's doing it for us. So Jesus begins to wash his disciples' feet. It's not hard to imagine, and I think the text suggests that they were too astonished to speak, most of them. But Peter, who's both extraordinarily perceptive, but who also wears his faults on his sleeve, you know this about Peter, simply can't take it. He's evidently been watching Jesus doing his work, and he's decided that Jesus will not serve him like this. He's not going to stand for it. It's all upside down. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Jesus, you shouldn't be acting this way. And so by the time Jesus gets to him, Peter had stiffened his resolve. Are you going to wash my feet? The text tells us. And the scene, I think, unfortunately, comes across as kind of mildly comical in our translations. But in fact, it's deadly serious, as we can see from the conversation that follows. Jesus calmly explains that everything's all right, that while Peter doesn't understand now, he will understand afterward or after these things. And here is an allusion, I think, to the clarity that Peter will later have after the resurrection and ascension, and especially after the coming of the Holy Spirit, where he's able to see the glory of God more clearly. But at this moment, Peter's not at all persuaded, because unlike the rest, he's not merely objecting to the idea of Jesus assuming the posture of a slave, as offensive as that was. But on a deeper level, Peter's resistance was also inspired by a seemingly high view of God, but also, as it happens, a dead wrong view of God. Look, Jesus, he says, 
I can't let you do this. This is beneath you. And the Greek here that John uses is unequivocal. Our English translators have rendered his words as never, but another way to translate the sentence would be, by no means will you wash my feet ever. Peter won't stand for it. So why doesn't Peter get it? Why doesn't Peter get it? What isn't he seeing? Obviously, Peter believes in Jesus. He's a follower. He's one of the committed. But however momentarily, here he's lost sight of his need and his brokenness and his sin. And as a result, he's also mistaken something that's utterly fundamental and basic to Jesus' ministry and God's love. And that is that Jesus must come to us as a servant. One who gloriously does the Father's will, of course, but also one who as a servant enacts and embodies God's love for the world, entering into its brokenness. And the sobering message of this text is that if you miss this about Jesus, if you miss this about God's love, as Peter did in this moment, you will miss Jesus. And of course, the point here in this entire gospel of John is that if you miss Jesus, you will tragically also miss God. In Peter's context, refusing to recognize in Jesus the descent of God into our broken, sinful, fragmented lives ultimately means a refusal to recognize the dire necessity of the cross itself. And so Jesus says in verse 8, listen, Peter, if I don't wash you, you will have no share with me. In other words, you can't have me any other way. If you want me, then take me as I come. Look, this is how God's love comes to the world. Jesus on his knees. Conventional wisdom, you talk to people out there, conventional wisdom says that people can't find God because he's too distant and high. Can't see God. He's out there. He doesn't make himself real to me. I can't see his glory. I can't see his miracles. But think about this. The Bible teaches, and Jesus is trying to show us right here, that more often we don't find God. Actually, we refuse to see God because he's too uncomfortably near and too unspeakably, disgracefully low. And then something happens to Peter when Jesus responds to him in this way. Do we suppose that suddenly, in a second, Jesus' ministry of demeaning service suddenly makes sense? Oh, oh, I get it all now. Probably not. Peter will still have questions. But when left with the option of submitting to the washing and having Jesus or refusing it and losing him, Peter knows what he wants. 
And so he moves all the way to the other extreme. If that's the way it is, Jesus, then wash all of me. My hands, my feet, my head. And to which Jesus responds, of course, that's not necessary, Peter. You're clean. Only your feet are dirty. In other words, Peter, like all disciples of Jesus, no longer belongs to the world. He belongs to Jesus. And because of the work of the cross, he doesn't need to be cleaned again. But yes, in this world, your feet will get dirty. And for this, as for everything, you will need the loving hands of God. Later on in this passage, Jesus will say that his work here, this this washing of his disciples' feet, was given as an example to the disciples, that they also ought to wash one another's feet. And it's clear now, I think, what this means, isn't it? It doesn't mean, I don't think, that churches should institute fush-washing ceremonies into their liturgies. I'm sure it'd be interesting on some level, and some churches have done this, but I don't think the practice means quite the same thing today as it did then, and so I think the point might largely be lost. But it does mean that power, as God designed it, has a purpose, which means power is not something that Christians ought to shun, as if it would be better or more morally virtuous to have less of it. No, power is a gift. Almost nothing happens in the world without power. Think about it. The problem is that power is often used in such ungodly ways. And I mean that literally. But that's not what power is for. It's not for selfish gain. It's not for exploitation. And it's easy to forget what power is for, which is why we need this example. Jesus reminds us that God's power is for love. Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, he rose from supper and then descended. He loved all the way to the end. Jesus, the Lord of creation, channels all the power of heaven in a very specific way to descend into the brokenness and vulnerability of our human experience and to bring healing and wholeness, redemption, and ultimately even more power. We are strengthened by Jesus' actions, and we get to go strengthen others. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has empowered you by his Holy Spirit to go from here and follow his example, descending, healing, empowering. Will you pray with me? Father, before we can hope to follow the example of your Son, we need to know him as the one who descended to our feet. Would you, by your Spirit, help us, as you did, Peter, to set aside our defenses 
and to offer ourselves to be molded by his hands. Would you so convince us of your love and redemption that we fear not the loss even of our reputations, our dignity, our comforts, and even our own lives, but rather find our life in conforming to the self-giving shape of yours. You have revealed to us what your love is like in the sending of your Son. Would you do this for his sake and the sake of his everlasting kingdom? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.